0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Axioms of Liberty Podcast, where I read some of the most philosophical thinkers of our era in order to help you build a better foundation to help you understand your world. And I've been having a lot of uh, internet spouts and debates with other individuals about the the fallacy that is intellectual property. And I've been talking about getting into intellectual property for some time now. So I think it is high time that the world is showing me that it is time we dive into intellectual property. And one of the greatest thinkers in intellectual property is Stefan Kinsella himself. And with that being said, I think we should go through kind of Stefan Kinsella's early works of IP and work forward from there so that you can kind of see how his thesis has developed from the beginning. And see how his argumentation for intellectual property has developed over time. And I think it could possibly do best for all of us in uh, changing our own thinking about intellectual property. Because some people think that uh, intellectual property is actually a capitalist thing, when in fact it's not, because of the grounding and basis for which intellectual property limits the use of ideas, so basically limits the use of something that's indefensible, um, using the state apparatus to inhibit others from using said ideas and implementing said ideas. So if you're using the state to defend something, you are actually, you know, unable to defend that idea or that thing in general. So with that, we're going to read Stefan Kinsella's very first foray into intellectual property, and uh, if we can continue, I'm going to try to keep reading more of his articles uh, regarding to this topic. So this is a submission to a paper called the Institute for Objectivist Studies, and it's titled Intellectual Property Rights by Stefan Kinsella. As an intellectual property law attorney with great appreciation of Ayn Rand's philosophy and an interest in property rights theory. I was quite interested to read Murray I. Frannick's article in April 1995's IOS Studies. Intellectual property rights are intangibles true property? Mr. Frannick argues that intangible property, such as personality property, and patents, copyrights, and trademarks is actually property deserving of the protection of law. However, there seem to me to be several insurmountable problems in treating intangible entities such as reputations and inventions as property. First, the very reason we need property rights is that we do not live in the Garden of Eden where everything is in infinite abundance. Rather, Some things are, by their nature, scarce, which means that there can be conflicts between individuals over who gets to consume and control various scarce goods. Because of the possibility of such conflicts and the necessity of humans being able to use physical goods to survive in the world, we must have a system of property rights that solve such conflicts by allocating specific scarce goods to specific individuals. Thus, I can own and farm black acre, and you can build a house on green acre, rather than us eternally warring over these tracks. However, intangibles such as ideas, i.e. a particular invention which may be patented under today's laws, are the exact opposite of a scarce good. Person B may learn of and use A's idea without diminishing A's possession and use of the idea. As Thomas Jefferson wrote, He who receives an idea from me receives instruction himself without lessening mine, as he who lights him to set mine receives a light without darkening me. It is true that the economic value of A's idea may diminish if B is able to learn and use it without paying A for this. But property rights protect the integrity of one's property, not its value, since value is dependent on what others are willing to pay for it. For example, your house may be more valuable on the market if your neighbor has a nice rose garden. But you do not have a right to this value at all, and your neighbor has every right to tear down his rose garden even if it reduces the value of your property. Thus, ideas do not deserve property protection because they are not scarce goods and thus simply not property. Another problem with intellectual property rights is that at least some of them seem to be inherently arbitrary and vague. This is in contrast to normal property rights, to tangible or corporal objects like land and furniture, which have objective intersubjective and ascertainable boundaries that can be determined and respected by everyone. A patent protects an invention which is defined in the patent's claims, but these claims are much more vague than are the boundaries of normal property. There is often no objective answer as to whether an allegedly infringing invention is the same as that claimed in the patent. Further, the scope of things that patent rights apply to seems both arbitrary and inherently vague and subjective. Patents for example protect inventions, but not abstract ideas. Thus, I can get a patent on a new mousetrap while in a recent case of Travato 1994, the inventor of a new way to calculate a number representing the shortest path between two points an extremely useful technique was denied patent protection because this was merely a mathematical algorithm. Why the distinction? Are not both equally beneficial to mankind? Do not both discoveries require creative intellect? Patent law seems to arbitrarily protect some intellectual creations but not others. And one final problem with intellectual property rights is that at least some of them require legislation to be created, i.e. they would never form in any common law system. A patent, for example, is a monopolistic grant by government to exclude others from using or selling one's patented invention. It is doubtful that a rights-respecting court-based system would create or recognize such privileges. Bruno Leone explained in freedom and the law, why legislation should not be considered the primary way of making law. Legislators are incapable of escaping special interest influence and are also hopelessly ignorant of the complex patterns that naturally involve in society. Much as central economic planners cannot efficiently plan socialist societies, as as Ludwig von Mises demonstrated, in the 1920s. Thus, legislators' centrally issued commands are usually inapt and have unintended consequences. It is very unlikely that edicts issued by government employees will have anything to do with individual rights or with what property law ought to be. For this reason, common law type systems should be relied upon as the primary way of discovering legal principles, and legislation should be distrusted and regulated to a strictly secondary status. Intellectual property rights that depend on legislation for their existence are suspect on this ground alone. And that is the end of his short little article. So the very ending there, the last, I don't know, 45 seconds or so, was actually taken out of the, the initial article that was published and added on to the end, but was cut out by the editor. For obvious reasons. But the editor actually responded to him, and I kind of actually want to read his response because reading somebody who's critiquing your response is probably, you know, a good way to really understand if your thesis or your hypothesis or your idea is actually, you know, has some merit to it. So we're going to read the, the editor's response. As a general thesis about property rights, I think Mr. Kinsella's point about scarcity misses the essence of the issue. Property rights are required because man needs to support his life by the use of his reason. The primary task in this regard is to create values that satisfy human needs. Rather than relying on what we find in nature, as animals do, I therefore agree with Murray's premise that the essential basis of property rights lies in the phenomenon of creating value. Scarcity becomes a relevant issue when we consider the use of things in nature such as land as inputs to the process of creating value. As a general rule, I would say that two conditions are required in order to appropriate things in nature and make them one's property. 1. One man must put them to some productive use, and 2. That productive use must require exclusive control over them, the right to exclude others. Condition two only holds when the resource is scarce, but for things that one has created, such as a new product, the act of one's creation is the source of the right, regardless of scarcity. So that was his critique of the article, but definitely I liked this read. It was nice and short, and we will continue going on with more of his uh, articles in the next one. Is going to be titled, Is Intellectual Property Legitimate? And it goes like this. As Socrates pointed out, the unexamined life is not worth living. As citizens, lawyers, and more practically, as intellectual property lawyers, we should, from time to time, examine just what it is we are doing in our lives and careers. It is quite interesting, for example, that patent lawyers take for granted the legitimacy of even having a patent system. In other words, most of us think we should have patent laws and copyright and trademark and trade secret laws as well. It would probably surprise many IP lawyers to know that the legitimacy of IP laws historically has been and continues to be the subject of some controversy, at least in theoretical or academic circles. Since we are in the business of obtaining protection for clients under these IP laws, perhaps the legitimacy of IP laws bears examining. Locke and Betham Proponents of IP laws typically use two types of arguments to justify IP laws, such as copyright and patent laws, which I will focus on here. The first is a Lockean-style natural law or natural rights argument which argues that creations of the mind are entitled to protection just as tangible property is. Part of the motivation for this theory is fairness. IP is brought into being by its creator, so as a matter of fairness, the creator has a right to own it and profit from it. The second type of argument is more utilitarian and wealth maximization-based, and essentially argues that production, creativity, and innovation in society is maximized by granting monopolies to writings and inventions so to encourage authors and inventors. It's just natural. One problem with natural law approach is that intangible property, such as patents and copyrights, is not like tangible property. Most significantly, IP is not naturally scarce in the economic sense. Under Lockean theory, The state of nature contains natural property, which is economically scarce, meaning that my use of black acre conflicts with your use of black acre. Use of such property is exclusive since my use excludes yours, and vice versa. So that scarce property and resources can be used without potential users eternally warring over these tracks. Ownership is allocated to the first user who mixes his labor with it, according to Lockean theory, or to the creator for created goods, so as to solve this problem. However, were we in a Garden of Eden where land and other goods were infinitely abundant, there would be no scarcity and thus no need for property rules. For example, you're taking my lawnmower would not really deprive me of it if I could just conjure up another in a blink of an eye. Lawnmower taking in these circumstances would not be theft. Thus, classical property rights do not seem to naturally apply to things of infinite abundance. Like the magically reproducible lawnmower, ideas as implemented in inventions or creative works, for example, are also not scarce, at least not in the same way as tangible or physical property. For example, if I invent a new technique for growing bananas, it is not take my technique from me if you also grow bananas in the same way. Your use does not exclude mine. We can both use my technique to grow bananas. There is no economic scarcity and no possibility of conflict over the use of a scarce resource and thus no need for exclusivity. Similarly, If you copy a book I have written, the original, tangible book is still there. Thus, books are not scarce in the same sense as a piece of land or a car. As Thomas Jefferson himself, an inventor, and the United States' first patent examiner wrote, He who receives an idea from me receives instruction himself without lessening mine, as he who lights his taper at mine receives light without darkening myself. Thus, the argument goes, since use of another's idea does not deprive him of its use, no conflict over its use is possible, which undermines the natural law justification for property rights in IP. A Fair As for the charge that it would be unfair to provide a right to one's intellectual creations, even advocates of IP do not maintain that the legal system must reward everyone for every single useful idea that they come up with. For example, philosophical or mathematical or even scientific truths cannot be protected. Commerce and social intercourse would grind to a halt where every new phrase, philosophical truth, and the like considered exclusive property rights of its creator. But, if it is fair to leave these creators unrewarded, why is it unfair to not reward the other types of creators? Indeed, it could be argued that it is unfair to discriminate between classes of intellectual creators by providing one group with IP rights and the other group with nothing. For example, I can get a patent on a new mousetrap, but in one recent case, The inventor of a new way to calculate a number representing the shortest path between two points, an extremely useful technique was denied patent protection because this was merely a mathematical algorithm. Why the distinction here, a critic might ask? Do not both discoveries require creative intellect and benefit society? In short, the fairness argument falters, since it cannot be applied uniformly and even consistently without itself causing unfairness. And virtually no one is willing to provide IP protection broadly enough to eliminate this perceived unfairness. Utility Belt The utilitarian defense of IP has also come under attack. Utilitarianism, founded by Jeremy Betham, holds that utility, by some measure, such as wealth or its proxies, creation, and innovation, should be maximized and thus favors legislation that causes certain desired results or consequences to be produced. The utilitarian theory is based on the assumption that creators would not invest the time or capital necessary to produce such products. If others could copy them with impunity, this is the common justification patent lawyers typically give. Patents are needed to encourage inventors to invent. It is also the rationale in the U.S. Constitution's grant of copyright and patent authority which provides that Congress shall have power to promote and encourage the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. Critical points to several problems with justifying IP on utilitarian or similar grounds. The first objection is that utilitarianism is an ends-justifies-the-means philosophy, which is in itself problematic. Horrible violations of individual rights can be perpetrated in the name of this philosophy, as the history of this bloody century shows. As for IP, utilitarians hold that the end of encouraging more innovation and creativity is used to justify the arguably immoral means of restricting could not rely on a 20-year monopoly. Further, some argue that the grant of a patent for processes and discoveries having practical applications skews research and development away from the theoretical R&D. It is not clear that society is better off with more practical invention and less theoretical R&D. Additionally, Many inventions are patented for defense reasons, and much overhead is spent on patent lawyers' salaries and PTO fees. That would not otherwise have to be spent if there was no such thing as patents. Paying the Bills versus Intellectual Integrity It is not surprising that IP attorneys seem to take for granted the legitimacy of IP. After all, it pays the bills. This acknowledged self-interest does not necessarily mean that we are wrong to support IP, but it does give us cause to be skeptical of the seductive appeal of what may be make-weight rationalizations. As members of our community and as participants in the governmental and legal machinery, it behooves us to recognize our own built-in bias and, on occasion, to question and reflect on the widely held justifications that we hear ourselves sometimes repeating by rote, and that's the end of that article. So, as you can see, he kind of reused a couple lines from the prior article in this uh, reiteration, but he definitely expanded a little bit more on the two or on the idea itself by um, shelling out the natural law case for why IP is quote-unquote justified and then the utilitarian case as to why patent lawyers actually um, you know justify the reasoning and justification and we all know with utilitarian arguments the ends justify the means is never a justifiable or morally um, defensible reasoning for creating such things Um, but I definitely enjoy his takes and looking forward to more and more of these types of reads. So the first article was written in 95. The second one was written in 1998. The next one that he has up here is actually not even done until 2000s, so almost another two years later. His next big one. And his next big one was called, In Defense of Napster and Against the Second Homesteading Rule. Internet bad boy Napster has come under fire in a lawsuit filed earlier this year by the Recording Industry Association of America. On behalf of its members, the RIA contends that Napster's services enables and facilitates piracy of music on an unprecedented scale and seeks to shut it down. Napster, for infringing on the copyrights of its members, U.S. District Court Judge Marilyn Hall Patel initially granted the RIA a preliminary injunction, effectively ordering Napster to shut down. However, the injunction has since been stayed by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, pending an appeal. This case gives rise to the question, should Napster be shut down by force of law? The answer can be, only if Napster is violating the individual rights, property rights, of others. determine this, we can ask a two-pronged question, 1. Is Napster violating any positive law, and 2. If so, is the law legitimate? The second question is necessary because even if Napster is technically in violation of a legal prohibition, we can only say that Napster should subject to the law's punishments if the law itself is legitimate. To hold otherwise is to adopt legal positivism and the moral relativism from which it springs. Let us take both of these arguments into question. Positive Law First, does Napster violate U.S. copyright law? In the Napster system, Napster users A and B find each other by using a directory maintained by Napster. Napster uses A then copies the digital music file for Napster user B. Using file transfer software provided by the Napster service, this is known as peer-to-peer file sharing. However, the file is transferred from B to A over the internet, not through Napster's servers. Napster does not itself do any copying. It is more like an intermediary who introduces A and B who then may copy files from each other. It is clear then that Napster does not directly infringe on any copyrights because it does not itself reproduce the music files. For this reason, Napster has been accused of only contributing infringement contributing to the direct copyright infringements of its consumer users, and of vicarious infringement profiting from infringing activity under its control. Napster has several defenses available under the law. Perhaps the strongest defense to contributory infringement is the staple Article of Commerce doctrine. Under this doctrine, A provider of technology used to perform the direct infringement is not liable as a contributory infringer if the technology is capable of commercially significant non-infringing uses. If a product has both infringing and non-infringing uses, then the sale of the product is not necessarily contributing to others' acts of infringement. Paraphrasing the NRA selling technology doesn't infringe people do it was under this rationale that the supreme court permitted the sale of vcrs which can be used both for copyright infringement and for legal non-infringing uses such as time shifting likewise napster's service is a capable of numerous commercially significant non-infringing uses such as promotion and distribution of songs from independent record labels and new artists, free authorized distribution of songs, in addition to sampling and space-shifting the process of sharing files between hard drives and players. Thus, because Napster can be used for these and other significant non-infringing uses, it is not a contributory infringer. As for the vicarious infringement, There is only liability if Napster has both 1. The right and the ability to supervise the infringing activities of its users and 2. A direct financial interest in the infringing activities. However, despite the district court's ruling, there is no way for Napster to distinguish between legitimate and illegal copying by its users. Thus, it does not have the ability to supervise any infringing activities. Additionally, Napster is not liable under either theory if its users are not direct infringers. There are two such arguments. First, Napster's users themselves may have a fair use defense to copyright infringement. Most consumer copying is not for commercial purposes, but for sampling or space shifting, which is arguably Constitutes fair use. If Napster users have a fair use defense, they are not direct infringers. Second, under the Audio Home Recording Act, consumers have a right to create and transfer digital music for non commercial purposes. Because Napster users typically share files for free, the copying is arguably for non commercial purposes. Thus, either due to its fair use defense, Or the AHRA, Napster users are not direct infringers, meaning that there is no direct infringement to which Napster can contribute or even be held vicariously liable for. Legitimacy of copyright law. Even assuming Napster violates positive copyright law, we must inquire into the legitimacy of the law. Unlike most other federal laws, copyright law is clearly authorized by the Constitution. This, however, does not mean the law is legitimate, only that it is constitutional. The question is whether copyright law is justified, i.e., is it in accord with our natural rights. Redistribution of property Let us recall that copyright gives an author partial rights of control over the tangible property of everyone else. The author has partial ownership of others' property because, by virtue of his copyright, he can prohibit them from performing certain actions with their own property. The author, for example, can prohibit a third party from inscribing a certain pattern of words on his own blank pages. With his own ink. That is, by merely authoring an original expression of ideas, by merely thinking of and recording some original pattern of information, the author instantly and magically becomes a partial owner of others' property. He has some say over how third parties can use their property. Copyright changes the status quo, by redistributing property from individuals of one class, tangible property owners, to another, authors of original works. Prima facie, therefore, copyright law trespasses against or takes the property of tangible property owners by transferring partial ownership to the authors. The same is also true for other forms of intellectual property, such as patent law. It is this innovation, and redistribution of property that must be justified in order for copyright law to be valid. Can this be done? Utilitarianism The most common defense of copyright law is utilitarian. It argues that creativity and wealth are increased by granting monopolies to writings so to encourage the authors. Without a copyright in their works, many authors would not bother to write novels, software, or other types of works. In fact, most utilitarians ground their defense of all the property rights in utilitarianism. Conservatives and libertarians should be wary of adopting such utilitarianism. It is a thoroughly incoherent and immoral doctrine for several reasons. First. Even if a given policy could increase net wealth by redistributing property from A to B, that does not justify the policy. The goal of a law is justice, not wealth maximization. B may be helped more than A is harmed by redistribution. But how does this justify the harm done to A? By the reasoning of utilitarians, we could not condemn every act of theft, rape, or murder, we would just have to weigh the benefit to the thief, rapist, or murderer against the harm suffered by the victim, to determine whether or not the crime should be permitted. In these cases, where the aggressor enjoys his crime more than it harms the victim, it is not a crime at all and should be permitted, since net wealth is increased, clearly. This is a wholly immoral and unprincipled view. Not only is utilitarianism morally insufficient to justify property redistribution, but it is an incoherent as well. As Austrian economists have shown, the utilitarian weighing of costs against benefits requires the impossible to be done, namely making interpersonal utility comparisons as when the costs of copyright laws are subtracted from the benefits to determine whether such laws are a net benefit. In short, there is no way to compare the benefit to B and the detriment to A of a given redistributionist policy, because values and disvalues have no cardinal magnitude. The reason for this is that values are subjective and ordinal, not cardinal. Finally, even if we set aside the problems of interpersonal utility comparisons and the justice of redistribution and plow ahead and employ standard utilitarian measurement techniques. It is not at all clear that IP laws do lead to an increase or decrease in overall wealth. That is, it has not been demonstrated that the costs of copyright and other IP laws outweigh the benefit of such laws. Utilitarian analysis is thoroughly confused and bankrupt. Talk about increasing the size of the pie is methodologically flawed. There is no clear evidence that the size of the pie is increased by IP rights, and any event pie growth simply does not justify the use of force against the otherwise legitimate property of others. For these reasons, utilitarian defenses of IP are not persuasive natural law, and the second homesteading principle. Some advocates of copyright and other forms of IP try to justify IP with natural law type arguments. For example, some say that the author creates a work and thus is entitled to own it. However, this argument begs the question by assuming that the authored work is property in the first place. Once this is granted... It seems natural that the creator of this piece of property is natural and the proper owner of it. But creation does not justify the ownership in things. If I homestead a farm, there's no need to be creative in the copyright sense. I need only be the first possessor of the land. And on the other hand, if I carve a statue into your block of marble, I do not thereby own the resulting statue. In fact, I may owe you damages for trespassing or conversion, thus creation is neither necessary nor sufficient for ownership. It is scarcity that is the hallmark of ownerable property, and it is by first possession that one comes to own such ownable property. This can be seen by examining the purpose and nature of property rights, where things are in infinite abundance, there would be no need for property rights. But in the real world, there are scarce resources. These things can be used and controlled by only a single person. Because of this fact of scarcity, there is always the possibility of interpersonal conflict over scarce resources. If I take your lawnmower, you no longer have it. If I take over your house and your land, you lose control of it. These tangible goods are scarce. Property rights exist to allocate ownership in scarce resources to a specified owner, thereby permitting conflicts over the use of these scarce resources to be completely avoided and even resolved. Thus, it is only the things that are scarce in the economic sense that can be property. This is why, for example, there can be Ownership of tangible scarce resources such as land, cars, printing presses, paper, and ink. Moreover, in the libertarian and conservative view, these property rights and scarce resources are allocated in accordance with the Lockean homesteading rule in which unowned scarce resources are homesteaded by the first possessor. The intangible things covered by copyright are just simply not scarce, in this sense. An idea or pattern of words, for example, can be copied by others an infinite amount of times without taking the idea from its originator. Unlike tangible property, several persons can use the idea at the same time, independently. If you copy my novel, I still have the novel, and you have it now too. Ideas are not scarce and are not property. As Thomas Jefferson himself, an inventor of the United States First Patent Examiner wrote, he receives an idea from me receives instruction himself without lessening mine, as he who lights his taper at mine receives light without darkening me. For this reason, copyrightable works should not be viewed as property, and copyrights should not be granted. In fact, because ideas are not property, granting property rights in them has to end up diluting the property rights accorded to actual scarce resources. And this is exactly what we see. As pointed out above, to grant an author a copyright in his novel means that he now has partial ownership rights in all others' tangible property. For example, I am an author. Arthur can prevent Brown, owner of Black Acre, from using Black Acre to recreate Arthur's Book Pattern. Yet, by the Lockean homesteading principle, once the unowned tract, Black Acre, is homesteaded by Brown's first possession of it, Black Acre is no longer unowned, and no longer subject to homesteading. There is no unowned property left to homestead, thus no action by Arthur can result in his homesteading, part ownership of Black Acre. Brown is the first possessor and the owner of Black Acre, not Arthur. Indeed, by explaining the situation in these terms, we can see why Arthur has no copyright in his authored work. Not only is Black Acre not subject to homesteading, it is already owned. Not only is Arthur not the first possessor of Black Acre, Brown beat him to it, but Arthur is not a possessor at all of Black Acre. Arthur could not even homestead an unowned tract of land, Greenacre, by merely writing a novel. The act of writing a novel is not an act of possession of Greenacre, much less first possession of it. To grant Arthur rights in Black Acre merely by virtue of setting down in writing an original expression of ideas requires the Lochesian homesteading rule to be undermined by a new, second homesteading principle. This new rule provides a second way that an individual can come to own tangible property. To wit, the copyright advocate must propose some homesteading rule along the following lines. A person who comes up with some creative idea which can be used to imprint a pattern of his own property, thereby instantly gains a right to control all other tangible property in the world with respect to that property's similar use. This newfangled homesteading technique is so powerful that it gives the creator rights in third parties already owned tangible property. This second rule of homesteading has no justification whatsoever and can only dilute and undermine private property rights just where they are needed. In scarce resources. For these reasons, property rights and ideas are not justified, and Napster should not be penalized by such unjust laws. And that is the end of the article. Very good, very good. I hope you guys all learned a little bit more today about intellectual property and why intellectual property is such an indefensible argument. Property is designed to sufficiently resolve conflict of two individuals claiming ownership of a common good. That is the basic premise of why property rights were created between individuals. Because like he says, if we were in the Garden of Eden, if we lived amongst infinite abundance of, The need for property rights would not even become an idea that would need to be satisfied. If you took my car from me and all I had to do was think, I just need another car, and poof, another one appeared out of thin air, then I wouldn't care that you took my car. But if you can break that down, why would you take my car if you could do the same thing and think, and create a car yourself so like just on its face none of that makes any sense but that's not the world we live in we live in a world where people own things and they own things for certain reasons because they need them they want them they like them etc etc the value of hierarchy of needs distributes of why such person values such a thing for whatever arbitrary reason they value those things now Let's enter the realm of intangible things, integers, mathematical equations, philosophical ideas. These things aren't real. They only exist in the mind. So how can we as individuals make a law, which is also a thing that is only in the mind, it doesn't exist, create a thing that exists only in the mind to protect a thing that only exists in the mind it, it it's like a circular argument of trying to reference something that's in the mind to protect something that's in the mind none of that makes any sense it doesn't make any justifiable morally defensible position to be a perpetrator or someone who pushes the idea of intellectual property now as uh Stefan says here in this article that he says that most people tried to use that the Lockean natural law that if we didn't have intellectual property that nobody would create anything. Well, government hasn't existed forever. So that means intellectual property hasn't existed forever. So therefore, what things got invented before government came about? All kinds of things. Like what? How do we... How do you not go and look back at history and say that things didn't exist before intellectual property did. I had one guy on Nostra recently tried to say that the only reason why we've had the explosion of the Industrial Revolution was because the intellect intellectual property laws existed. So therefore, because intellectual properties existed, the Industrial Age was allowed to continue, which I think is a fallacious and false... Uh, dichotomy of the idea because I think the industrial revolution happened in spite of intellectual property laws creation. I think that is a more better and principled position to have and way of thinking because that the creation of the new goods and services within that era the laws that were in place beforehand because we have to remember that laws usually come in place about what's already happened in the past, and they try to take those laws and apply those laws to the future. And if you necessarily create a good or service that doesn't have any laws that actually define it, and the, the laws actually take time to catch up to it, you actually have this small window of opportunity to exploit, not necessarily exploit, but I wouldn't say, I think exploit's the wrong word you actually have like this buffer, okay? That's a better way. You have this buffer zone of being able to maximize your profit in said industry before the laws actually get made and created that actually inhibit your ability to do so. So so let's take a um, um what is that? Amazon. Amazon for example. So in Amazon when the internet came around And, you know, this is kind of just further on this whole Napster portion of the laws is that a lot of the laws at that time were created for tangible things, actual real things at that time. Right. You know, CDs, books, etc. There was no way to possibly pass around the digital nature of these types of media. Then Napster comes along and does the same thing. So Amazon did the same thing. They took the idea of being able to distribute books In a digital way that there was no way and sell goods and services digitally native around the world that didn't have any regulation on it. So they were able to get away with doing so. I wouldn't say get away because they weren't doing anything wrong. They were just operating outside of the bounds of what the law of that time and current time frame constituted. So therefore they were able to maximally use a hundred percent of all the profits that they should have gotten because they did something that was novel and operated outside of the current jurisdictional um uh laws of that time. So they were actually able to be able to profit more. And in that time frame they were actually able to rise to the greatest freaking you know capitalistic Amazon monstrosity that they are today, but that required that they operate outside of the laws because the laws didn't actually catch up to them to force them to pay the, you know, the government gang, the the restitution or their you know their bullshit you know fees and whatnot that actually hampers the the uh, economic um, output of said company. So like I think that's kind of where. I've lost my chain of thought now. Ugh. But anyways, you guys kind of know what I'm going there with that, right? Is that 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 actually happens. The reason why they were able to, you know, profit so, so greatly in that time frame is because the laws were based on the past and they hadn't caught up to where the future of the world was actually heading, which was a more digitally native um, focused point-of-sale system, which is what Amazon capitalized on. Uh, But anyway, so, I hope you guys enjoyed today's articles. We will continue down the defensive IP, and it seems like he definitely reuses a lot of the same arguments about, you know, re-quoting the Thomas Jefferson quote, reusing the stealing of the lawnmower type thing. Uh, He uses the black acre and the green acre as you Know the hypothetical scenario in order to justify and frame his argument properly enough, but uh, so that was the first three reads. So he's got like uh, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. He's got like 20 different ones. Yeah, there's like 20 or 30 different ones here, but some of them are actually shorter than that. So we'll definitely cram a bunch of them in a couple episodes by doing so, and uh. I appreciate you guys for listening. Sorry I've been kind of MIA lately. I've been having a lot of issues trying to get recording done on Mondays lately. Just family, stuff at home, yada yada. But that's neither here nor there. I haven't forgot about y'all. I'll keep pumping out content because I've been like pretty pissed off to myself because I'm not actually reading and I'm not actually learning more myself. So I'm like, ugh, I just want to learn. I want to learn more things. So hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Talk to you guys next week.